Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the second Legal Hour event of 2020. Thank you very much for joining us. For those of you who do not know me, I am Professor Andrew Lynch, the Acting Dean of Law at the University of New South Wales. And I'm delighted to be hosting today's webinar on modern slavery. I begin by acknowledging the Bejigal people who are the traditional owners of the land from which I'm speaking to you today. I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the different lands that we collectively are meeting on, wherever we may be across the country. And I pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The topic of our discussion today is modern slavery. And this is part of Legal Hour, a biannual alumni engagement series hosted by the UNSW Law Faculty. Back in 2018, Australia's Commonwealth Government adopted a Modern Slavery Act, which requires more than 3,000 Australian businesses to publicly report on the actions they have taken to identify and address modern slavery in their operations and supply chains. The first public reports will be released this year. Today, we ask whether Australia's legal framework that is premised on mandated corporate disclosures is likely to be effective in combating modern slavery. What more is needed and how should businesses be responding? Before introducing our moderator, one minor housekeeping point. Today's discussion is recorded and will be made public following the session. Thank you to all those who have joined us. If you do need to leave early, the link will be emailed out tomorrow to everyone who registered. It's now my pleasure to introduce our moderator for today's panel, my colleague, Professor Justine Nolan. Justine is a professor here at UNSW's Faculty of Law, as well as a visiting professorial scholar at NYU's Stern Center for Business and Human Rights. Justine's research focuses on the intersection of business and human rights, in particular, corporate responsibility for human rights and modern slavery. She co-authored the book, Addressing Modern Slavery, which examines how consumers, business and government are both part of the problem and the solution in curbing modern slavery in global supply chains. Thank you, Justine. Thank you so much, Andrew. And thanks to everyone who is joining us live today for what will be a very interesting discussion. Uh, like Andrew, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I stand and also our support here at UNSW for the Uluru Statement and all that it stands for. So before we dive straight into our topic today, let me introduce you to our panel. Dr. David Cook has been Chair and Managing Director of Konica Minolta for the last seven years and during that time has built a sustainability agenda into the business, incorporating the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights into their decision-making process. He's implemented a human rights and ethical sourcing framework with a focus on eliminating, eliminating human rights abuses and slavery from their supply chain. In 2018, their work was recognized with the Australian Human Rights Commission's Business and Human Rights Award. David is also the chairperson for the UN Global Compact Network Australia and the chairperson of UNSW's Australia Human Rights Institute Advisory Committee. David is also a proud alum from UNSW. Dr. Phoebe Wynne-Pope has 25 years experience working extensively with government, business, academia, the media, and the public to develop excellence in humanitarian practice and human rights. As the head of the business and human rights section at Cause Chambers Westgarth, Phoebe works with clients to consider the human rights impacts of their operations and the value to be gained by adopting a human rights framework 
when assessing risks and opportunity. Phoebe is also on the advisory committee for the UNSW's Australian Human Rights Institute. And finally, Rachel Davis, who is the vice president and co-founder of SHIFT, a leading center of expertise on the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. SHIFT's mission is to transform how business is done in order to ensure respect for people's lives and dignity. SHIFT is headquartered in New York and its team of experts work globally with business, government, investors and community stakeholders to put the UN guiding principles into practice. And Rachel is a proud alum of UNSW Law. Please also note just before we start that you'll have an opportunity um, to put questions into the chat function. So please do that as we go along and we'll save time at the end to get, the, get, to, get to those questions. So let's begin on today's topic with our panel. What do you think about when you hear about the word slavery? Generally, people to think, tend to think about the transatlantic slave trade or even ancient Greece or Egypt. Slavery existed then and slavery very much exists now. The clothes we wear, the coffee we drink, the vegetables we eat, the phones we buy, all of these are end products that are tainted often by supply chain coming out of long, complicated um, supply chains that are tainted by modern slavery. It's a global goal to end modern slavery by 2030. There are currently an estimated 40.3 million people enslaved around the world, and 70% of those are women. That means around 10,000 people need to escape slavery each day if we're going to meet that goal. This is very much a daunting challenge and one that business has a major role to play. And our focus today in particular will be on modern slavery in global supply chains. The number of industries, goods and services that are associated with modern slavery is staggering. Some of these are the more obvious that include manufacturing, mining, seafood, agriculture, um, but also more recently, we've seen a lot of highlights in the media around the production of personal protective equipment and rubber gloves that are coming into Australia. The global profits of modern slavery are substantial, estimated to generate more than US 150 billion each year in illegal profits. Modern slavery occurs in the largest consumer markets in the world and in the smaller countries. That means there's a lot of companies and consumers that rely on slaves. So what is modern slavery? Modern slavery is an umbrella term that in, in encounters sort of a number of specific, specific legal terms. It's basically uh, a, describes situations where offenders use coercion, threats or deception to exploit victims and undermine their freedom. It includes things like human trafficking, which is the movement of people for exploitative purposes. This includes sex trafficking, but this will not be the focus of our discussion today. Slavery itself, um, is traditionally characterised as illegal ownership of, of a person. In these days, it's much more focused on the illegal control of people. Forced labour, which is predominant in global supply chains, is where a person doesn't consider themselves free to either stop or leave their job. This may also include debt bondage, often where a worker has paid an excessive uh, recruitment fees. And modern slavery also includes forced marriage and the worst form of um, child labour. Generally, it's a term that's used to describe serious exploitation. It's not always easy to identify, and it's very much exists on what we might call a continuum of exploitation. There's been debates about whether slavery is relevant to Australia, and our Prime Minister recently said in a radio interview, there was no slavery in Australia. I think you'll find that after today's discussion that there is and that there was slavery in Australia. In particular, there was slavery in Australia, in particular in relation to Australia's First Nations people. 
um, in a number of industries, the pearling industry, the pastoral industry, the agricultural industry. As Andrew noted at the outset, in 2018, Australia adopted a modern slavery act, and these first reports are now starting to surface in Australia. More than 3,000 Australian businesses, including the federal government and universities, will need to take report on the actions that they have taken to identify and address modern slavery. New South Wales has also passed a modern slavery act, but it's not yet in effect. We're hoping that it will take effect in 2021, but it's still in limbo at the moment. UNSW has recently released its modern slavery policy and has work undergoing at the moment in relation to its own supply chains. So some of the issues we're gonna to canvas today will be whether Australia's current legal framework that's premised on these disclosures is likely to be effective in combating modern slavery, and if not, what more is needed? So let's start with you, David. Can you tell us? You may have heard these stories, but they were very, very pivotal um, to how Kronika Minolta, a Japanese technology company, kind of stumbled into the world of modern slavery. And they both involved conferences in Southeast Asia, which we were holding uh, for our team members. Uh, the first one was in Cambodia, and we needed a keynote speaker really didn't know who to get. And we had a woman recommended to us who had spent 20 years of her life uh, rescuing young women from uh, human trafficking and sexual slavery. And she not only um, attended the conference to speak, but she brought about five young women with her who had uh, been through their system of rehabilitation and were now in first year uh, university. Um, so we, we, we heard about the worst and we kind of saw the better and so on. Um, but, but that wasn't corporate slavery, of course. Our first real brush with corporate slavery occurred a couple of years later. Um, again, it was at one of these conferences that we hold. Um, and this time we were on a, um, we're actually off the coast of Thailand found that blackness. And we, we asked the cruise director, what, what are these lights? We're way out in the middle of the ocean, there's nothing out here, what are the lights? And she said, well, they're actually Thai fishing vessels and they shine the light into the water, which attracts the fish and, and, and so on. Um, she said, it's very interesting you asked that question because it's only last week that we jumped in a little dinghy, we went out to one of the vessels, we explained we were from the cruise ship um, and we do talks about Thai culture and Thai cuisine and so on. Could we come on board and talk to them a bit about the type of fish that they catch? And the Thai fishing captain said to this woman, of course, yeah, come on board. As soon as she stepped on board that vessel, the first thing she saw was a, a man sitting on the deck with a collar around his neck and that was chained to the deck of the boat. Um, in, in horror, she said, um, who's that? And the Thai fishing captain looked down and he said, oh, oh, it's a slave. So firstly notice the dehumanizing language, not he's a slave, it's a slave. So to him, it was a commodity. And she said, but you can't have slaves. Uh, to which he responded with a sweep of his arm indicating all the other boats out on the ocean. He said, most of us have slaves. And then she said, but, but why is this, why have you got him chained up? And, and the fishing captain said, because this one's a troublemaker, but not for much longer, uh, it'll be fish food soon. So they were about to murder this man by throwing him overboard in the middle of the ocean. Um, to cut a long story short, she went, she, 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 the, the captain said, if you're so concerned, you can buy it off me if you want to. We're back to the ship. She brought back the money. They'd negotiated a price of 700 US dollars and she bought that human being um, who turns out, it turned out he'd come from Myanmar in the belief that he was coming for a good job in Thailand. 
to improve the life of his family. So we heard this story and we realized that the seafood being caught was going to find its way into the supply chains of some of the biggest global food producers in the world and probably into the Sydney fish markets and into restaurants and so on. So the, you know, there, there was a link there back to, um, back to corporate supply chains. And um, there's an old expression in the human rights world, which is once you know, you can't unknow. Once you've seen, you can't unsee. Uh, and we decided there and then that we needed to investigate our own business in case we were inadvertently um, involved in any forms of forced labour in our own supply chains. So we'll come back to, you know, how you went about that within your own business. But Rachel, um, David's highlighted the seafood sector as one high risk area. What other areas are at high risk and, and how much do you feel like to what extent businesses and consumers are aware of this problem? Thanks, Justine, and thanks for the opportunity to be part of the discussion. Um, I, I think we all hear slavery and we think, well, I'd know that if I saw it. Um, but I, I think that the, its prevalence across uh, industry sectors and across geographies, including developed economies like OECD countries such as Australia, the US, the UK, um, suggests that we're not always so good at understanding and recognizing it. Um, you've mentioned a number of sectors already. I, I guess what I would emphasize is that, you know, yes, we think about agriculture, but that includes fruit and vegetable picking pretty much anywhere. Uh, in any country, there are risks certainly of forced labor or bonded labor. Uh, in, uh, in that um, uh, activity. Uh, same with cotton and apparel manufacturing. We might think of factories in Bangladesh, but we've also seen instances of this um, in sewing labels onto high-end handbags in Italy. Um, we know that it's in other manufacturing sectors, uh, electronics, it's in construction sector globally. So it's really all around us. And sometimes the examples are stark um, and dramatic, as David has described. Um, I've spoken with survivors of similar kinds of, of experiences on Thai fishing vessels, um, and, and that is a, a, an appalling experience. Um, but sometimes it's more insidious, and um, sometimes it looks like people who want to work. So what do I mean by that? Well, speaking to migrant workers um, in Qatar, for example, in the Gulf, um, some of them have mortgaged their small plot of family land in Uganda, uh, or paid huge fees to recruitment agents in Nepal in order to get to Qatar to get a job in the construction sector to send money back home to their families. Um, but when they get to Qatar, either they're not paid on time or payments come later and later, or because of COVID interruptions, work has been stopped um, and they're on contracts where they don't get paid and, unless there's, there's work happening. Um, and so they, they, they stay. They stay because they're in debt they need the money, their employer promises them, oh, it's temporary, the, the money will come, the money will come, and, and so they stay, and they stay, and they stay, and it gets worse. Um, and I think when we um, look at someone in a situation of, uh, of work or labour like that, um, we need to be careful not to assume that we know why they're staying, or uh, make assumptions about them wanting to work, uh, and ask some more questions, frankly. And that's really what the due diligence mindset that we'll talk about today uh, encourages us all to do. And Phoebe, some sort of people think about modern slavery as something over there that's not really relevant to mm -hmm. us. It's at the end of a long supply chain. Why is it relevant to Australia? What does it look like in Australia? And why do we need a law like this? Uh, thanks, Justine. Well, I think, I, I think that all those images that we have of of slavery overseas and, and the inclination to think it, it's a problem that happens over there, as you say, is, is 
um, only part of a story. And in Australia, we see different kinds of situations that arise where people are forced to work under you know, those sorts of threats or coercion. For example, there may be threats to their families at home or threats to um, their immigration status, uh, threats of exposure to immigration authorities for overstaying or breaking visa requirements or when people have been recruited believing the job or payment conditions were something that were completely different. So we see in some of these sectors that um, Rachel has, has talked about in, in construction, in agriculture, in um, uh, fruit picking uh, we, and cleaning, where we see um, labour that is uh, often lower skilled, uh, often from... Um, less educated or perhaps where English is a second language or there might be limited English um, where people are brought in to uh, do seasonal work. Um, all of these instances are, are where we see risks. We know that the AFP have referrals, um, but we also know that those are the tip of the iceberg and that much of the um, modern slavery that we expect and understand to be in Australia is really hidden. And I've just got a couple of stories in terms of what that actually looks like. So I live on the Mornington Peninsula and we have a lot of um, orchards, uh, vineyards um, uh, in, in, the, in the region. And we often see busloads of labourers coming to pick fruit and vegetables or the wine, um, the grapes, uh, often those um, often those workers are brought in a bus uh, by a labour hire person, formal or informally, um, and, and, and in some instances those payments are made directly to the bus driver and without really knowing or understanding the circumstances of some of those workers. Now, that might all be absolutely fine, but if we're thinking about where risks lie, that also is an area that would be way open to exploitation. And it's really impossible to know unless you look and unless you ask the question. A friend of mine um, is on the, on the board of a small, uh, a small medical organisation that has, um, and, and has recently had another circumstance that really raised red, all, the, all the red flags, which was, a worker in their workforce who, a uh, cleaner, who was a very, very good at their job, had, had very specialised cleaning skills, had been trained and worked, and they had employed this person through a uh, labour hire organisation for the last six months. And when they wanted to recruit the person to, to work directly for them and ask for a referral from the labour hire organisation, the labour hire said, we can't give you a referral because this person has been working for us off the books. So the charity was paying invoices, um, which all looked as though they were um, all meeting the appropriate awards, uh, the expectations, all the employment requirements that they would expect. But then on the other side of that equation, the, the, the worker was actually off the books. Again, um, you know, what that looks like and what circumstances that worker is in is really uncertain unless you ask the question. And, and when we hear that hidden in plain sight 
uh, analogy that we have a lot of the time, we do, we see these workers, we see people in the fields, we see people cleaning our offices. And if the diligence isn't done around what, what their circumstances are, we'll never know. So um, what we've seen so far is that modern slavery might be um, set in the classic stereotype of someone actually being physically chained, but it's also this element of control and coercion in a workplace. It could, it could be happening in a nail bar down the street from you. It could be happening, you know, the fruit that you ate today. So it, be, it becomes quite difficult to identify, and it's this continuum. Um, wage underpayment alone would not equal modern slavery, but wage underpayment combined with coercion or threats could then amount to something called modern slavery. So David, your company, Conicum Nolta, will be reporting under the Modern Slavery Act. Can you tell us about how you've gone about responding to this law? What's the first steps your business put in place? Um, yes, yeah, so I, I think in terms of timing, um, we haven't done anything terribly different since the government compelled us to report. We kind of got out of the blocks a little bit earlier because of the experience we'd had that I mentioned previously. Um, but, but when we came back from that Thailand trip and wanted to do something, um, I realized just how ignorant I was of modern slavery. I hadn't actually heard that, that term until I started to Google. Um, and most of my um, searches led me to um, Walk Free, which is a, an organization in Perth that was established by Andrew, Nicola and Grace Forrest, part of the broader Mindaroo Philanthropic Foundation. Um, and it was dedicated to, to ending slavery. And I found that there was a, a mine of information there. And I actually rang up the CEO and I said, look, can I fly over to Perth and meet with you? I, I need to understand um, where our company may inadvertently be involved in any forms of, of forced labor, um, either in the products which we resell from our parent in Japan, or just simply in the, the products and goods and services which we purchase in Australia. <clears throat> and I think that's an important point to make that it's, if a company is not a manufacturer, it doesn't mean they may not be involved in modern slavery. If they buy anything, if they buy uniforms, if they buy office furniture, cleaning services, then there's a chance that it might be there. So what we did off the back of that visit to Perth was that we established a role of an ethical sourcing manager. Now, we're only a 500-person company, but we have a dedicated uh, ethical sourcing manager. We felt it was that important. Um, and we, we initially wrote um, a, a, um, a human rights positioning statement to hold ourselves to account, um, a, um, a supplier code of conduct to hold our suppliers to account, and also an ethical sourcing roadmap. Um, and they've been quite pivotal framework documents for us ever since. And they set us up in good stead for when the Modern Slavery Act became law to be able to respond to it. And we've actually just finished um, our draft and we'll submit that uh, you know, very, very soon, probably in the next week or so to the government. Thank you also for that nostalgic reference to flying to Perth. Um, it was something we used to do <laughs> in the old days. Um, so, Rachel, what, what David was starting to describe was sort of the due diligence step um, his company was taking to respond to this. Can you tell us, because one of the criticisms of uh, laws like Australia has been that they're sort of focused too much on reporting and disclosure by itself is not going to solve modern slavery. And that what, what we need to do is get into this concept more of what's called human rights due diligence. And there's been different approaches taken in other countries around the world, like France and the Netherlands, um, which some say is a more substantive approach. 
So can you just tell us what this means in relation to a company, what, what due diligence is, and what sure. it, how it applies in this context? Sure. So human rights due diligence, uh, as we understand it in the UN guiding principles, which are the basis for the Australian law and for many of the other laws that we're seeing, um, involves four steps. Uh, taking action to identify uh, severe risks to people and prioritising on the basis uh, of severity. Um, really looking at how you can prevent and also remediate those impacts where they occur. Uh, taking action to assess the effectiveness of your approach as a business. And then, of course, communicating about what you do. Um, and reporting in the sense of communicating is therefore part of human rights due diligence. Um, I think we certainly recognise at SHIFT that good reporting or good disclosure can and should be a window into the underlying human rights performance of a business. Um, it can play that role if a company is asking itself the right questions, um, which we would say are the questions in the guiding principles, and if the company is actually taking action on what it learns through the reporting process, so it's not just reporting for the sake of reporting. Um, to really make this work, though, you need uh, governments. You need governments to be playing their role to incentivize and hold business accountable um, for the quality of their reporting and for what that implies about the underlying due diligence. And I think the interesting dynamic we're seeing now in Europe, which has had uh, human rights reporting requirements in place in, in non-financial reporting for some time, um, so going beyond just the Modern Slavery Act in the UK, which uh, many uh, people may be familiar with, um, is sort of 10 years into implementation, a recognition that it might be time to take the next logical step or it is time to take the next logical step and actually require companies to carry out that whole underlying process of due diligence, not just the reporting component of it. Um, and I think what we uh, see both at the individual level of government in Europe with Germany uh, and the Netherlands, both about to put proposals on the table, um, which may extend to comprehensive due diligence uh, in the next couple of months. We see the European Commission beginning a major consultation on whether there should be an EU regulation. But businesses, a number of businesses have already moved on this agenda. They're doing the due diligence. And we hear from businesses and business associations themselves a sense that they want to level the playing field. Um, they want everybody to be doing this. Uh, and that's becoming, I think, uh, that's really going to be the dynamic in Europe for the next 18 months to two years now. So, Phoebe, we have a law that doesn't have any penalties for non-compliance um, in relation to it. It doesn't have any sanctions uh, for companies that don't report. And it doesn't specifically mandate that we need to do human rights due diligence. Do you think that this law can be successful in relation to this? Because we've seen that the UK has had a, a Modern Slavery Act since 2015, um, and there's some serious criticisms around, made around the compliance with that act. So, and New South Wales is proposing a different approach. What, what are your opinions on this sort of the validity of our law and the strength of it? I think the, um, the effectiveness of any voluntary scheme or um, is always challenged, but I think there are some useful signs and levers to encourage effectiveness in the system that we have. Um, we know that the mandatory reporting requirements that we have in the Act, even though there are no penalties, they do help strongly differentiate us from the UK. And we've, we've had a lot of clients that are looking to use their UK modern slavery statement in Australia, and they're simply not adequate, and they simply haven't done enough work to be able to legitimately respond to each of the mand um, mandatory reporting requirements. So I think that 
there are some strengths in the Australian Act that, that maybe aren't present in the UK Act, which can help. I think some of the other things that, that can help is that the what we're seeing is a number of non-reporting entities choosing to undertake supplier due diligence. And even though, um, you know, the, the reporting entities under the Act are required to do that and, and the, there are, you know, specific mandatory requirements under that, that we are seeing a lot of our clients who are not reporting entities choosing to undertake that supplier due diligence because either they think that it's the right thing to do because it's been brought to their attention and they're aware of it, or uh, the investor movement is demanding action on human rights change through the whole ESG movement um, and the sort of increasing demands from different parts of the business community um, who are wanting a, a, a more level playing field that Rachel has alluded to in terms of in requiring people, more businesses to be doing these things. So I think, I think that there's some positive signs, even though the mandatory, um, even though the penalties are not there. The New South Wales Act is interesting. We've seen that in the inquiries in both the UK Act and into the establishment of the Australian Act that demanding penalties and lower thresholds and the Australian Act chose the higher threshold and no penalties. And, and also that in the most recent inquiry, the New South Wales um, being, being recommended in the New South, South Wales Act to maintain that lower threshold and the penalties in order to pressurise the Commonwealth when they do a review of the Act. So that will be interesting to see what happens. But I think, um, I think that it's small steps. If we think about where we've come since the passing of the UN Guiding Principles at the UN in 2011 and the types of discussions businesses are having today and the types of work that they're doing, on their supply chain, requiring supplier code of conducts like the one Konica Minolta has put in place or supplier minimum standards, requiring suppliers to respond to them uh, and answer how they're meeting those standards. I think, you know, we need to, we need to look at some of the strengths rather than always at the weaknesses. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, I should comment that the New South Wales uh, law was adopted in 2018 before the federal law but it's not yet in effect. Um, so there's still a, there's just been a recent inquiry into New South Wales, which recommended it go into effect in 2021. Um, there's some political discussions going on, shall we say, that are um, urging, some urging the, um, act, that act to be implemented. So what we've heard so far is that you've all sort of talked about different um, responsibilities between government, between business. Uh, we'll get to the consumers at the moment, potentially between investors as well. Um, David, some would say that this issue is not really a corporate issue. It's the problem of government. Did you have trouble carving out and sort of um, getting the okay to spend your business resources and staff time on this? You're part of a much bigger global, global company. What was the approach of them when you started to put these act actions in place? Um, so, look, I probably headed down the path of um, just do it and ask for forgiveness later or explain myself later. Um, fortunately, I'm the managing director in Australia and the chair of our board, and I have a lot of autonomy. Um, but I must admit, when we started out, uh, my direct manager in Tokyo at the time, who was sort of number two person in the world, um, did feel that we were getting a bit distracted and away from core business. 
Um, but fast forward to last year, um, our global president, so his boss, um, had me uh, come and address a, a conference, a, a very prestigious conference that he was holding in Tokyo um, that most of the board attended and some very senior Japanese business leaders. And he asked me simply to speak on um, why did the federal government through the Australian Human Rights Commission um, give Konica Minolta its business award uh, in, the, in the previous year. And he was immensely proud that his company that he ran, Konica Minolta, in this country had been acknowledged in that way. So I think the important thing is that um, uh, not everybody will get it. But the point that I like to make to, to business, whether it's internally um, or externally, is that you can look at it through uh, an, uh, uh, the lens of uh, uh, what is correct morally or ethically to end the suffering of vulnerable people, or you can purely look at it through the business lens of is, is it a good business decision for you to eliminate slavery or any forms of forced labor from your organization? And of course it is. I mean, it's abhorrent to think that any company would knowingly purchase goods or resell goods that they could, they could do so more cheaply or with a better profit margin because the people who manufactured those goods were slaves. I mean, when you stop and think about it, um, slavery is a criminal um, action, criminal enterprise, huge criminal enterprise. And no, no, no company that views itself as being a good corporate citizen or a responsible business should be involved in any way, yet we pretty much all are. Um, and so it's incumbent on every company and every business leader in Australia really to do every, everything they can to eliminate that. And it can be driven by self-interest. It can be to improve your reputation, to avoid the potential for massive reputational damage when it comes to light that you are involved with slavery in some way. It can be um, as, a, as a huge motivator for your staff. I mean, the staff at Conica Minolta feel immense loyalty and pride in the company because we've taken a stance against slavery. Um, and people award us their technology contracts by saying to us, look, we had a look at your industry. All the products seem to be pretty undifferentiated. You're all much of a muchness. Pricing was about the same. But when we shifted our attention from not from what you were all trying to sell us and we moved our attention to who are you and what do you stand for? Do you stand for anything? Um, then uh, we were seen very, very favorably for the position we've, we've, we've taken in seeking to eradicate modern slavery. So the business case is very, very strong. Mm. Rachel, what about the role of consumers? We get a lot of focus and um, people saying the ethical consumer, that we should be focusing more on the conscious consumer business. How much of this should be on consumers and, and what, what can, how do consumers get involved in this and what are the limitations? It's a really important question. I mean, I, I think the challenge is that we've all collectively um, allowed these pretty severe impacts on people to become, um, to some extent, accepted externalities in the way that global value chains um, are operating. Uh, and as you know, David was just saying, um, there are many of us now who want to change that uh, business, governments, stakeholders, um, including consumers. Uh, but I don't, I think it's unrealistic to think that we could rely on consumer pressure alone to really address what are 
fundamental um, aspects of how global value chains or, or and even sectors um, operate now. Um, what we need in addition to the businesses that are already taking action and, and want to do more uh, is for governments to look at, uh, in addition to reporting requirements, what more is going to be needed. Um, I think that does, as we're seeing in Europe, include measures like uh, requiring companies to carry out due diligence. But I think it, uh, it also means a range of enabling policy measures. Um, so things like incentivizing business with access to public procurement um, or access to export or trade promotion uh, support services as well. Um, providing authoritative guidance and resources to businesses who lack capacity uh, to do this themselves or who need to steer in the right direction. Um, and I'd flag the guidance that the government here put out um, on handling COVID-related risks in the supply chain in that regard, because it doesn't just say, have this policy and process. It says, here are the kinds of practices and behaviors that we want to see staff in business adopting to really deal with these challenges and not put further pressure uh, on suppliers' um, ability to meet human rights standards in these difficult times. Um, and we also, of course, need governments to do what, what they should be doing all the time, which is using leverage with their government counterparts uh, in other countries around uh, labor standards where we're looking at, uh, at international supply chains, not just domestic supply chains. So um, for me, I think that's, that's where the conversation uh, now needs to, to focus. So Phoebe, I mean, we, we sort of say that's where it needs to focus, but we one of the recent issues that's been in the media has been the um, sourcing of products, particularly often cotton products from the region of Xinjiang in China, um, where we know there are forced detention camps, particularly the Uyghur minority, um, it has been used to pr produce these goods, um, cotton picking and then um, producing cotton garments. How do Australian consumers even figure this out? How do they go about being informed about this? Uh, look, I think that that is a really good question and it's really difficult. It's uh, There are some... Uh, there are some resources available for consumers to look at, which is um, know, you know, know your supply chain kind of resources where you can look at different consumer brands and see how they're, how they're rated um, and what that looks like. But I think, uh, I think a, a in, increasing awareness for consumers about the issues, I think there's still not a great sense um, amongst a broader uh, consumer public that um, that the types of consumer practices that they're engaged in promote these things and I things like fair trade have done an enormous amount of good to help promote the idea of fair and just trade and, and supply chains but it's still very limited and it still seems to um, not reach into all the all the corners of the consumer market. So I think there's a big piece of work still still should be done to put that pressure on. But I, I agree with Rachel that there's only so much that consumers can do. You know, we know that um, back in the 19th century, um, people in England stopped having sugar in their tea because it was picked on the plantations in by by people living in situations of slavery and it really didn't have a huge impact on the fight against slavery. There are a whole lot of other things that, that did that. And one of the key things with that was the, the economics of it, when the protection was taken from the slave ships, um, when the fines were imposed on, um, on the slavers trading slaves. So I think that the focus on business practices is really important. 
one of the things that we've been talking to our clients a lot about is the um, how to think about broader human rights due diligence as a part of their risk management framework. And I know clearly when we're talking about human rights risks or modern slavery risks, we're talking about risks to people, not risks to the business per se. But if you have massive human rights or modern slavery risks in your supply chain, they will manifest themselves as risks to the business. So where clients have been able to build human rights and modern slavery due diligence into their existing and broader risk management processes, we're starting to see the development of cultures of compliance across a whole range of issues, a hugely, um, a much more educated workforce, and therefore, more educated consumers about some of the issues and, and some of the things that need to take place to address, address those um, problems and challenges which are really so deep in the supply chain. Yeah, and there are a number of, um, there's apps like the Good On You app, the Baptist World Aid has a fashion guide that's out each year. There's a small Queensland company called Outland Denim, which is making a really serious effort um, to um, deal with this issue in their supply chain. So check them out. Um, there's lots of resources out there to help. So a lot of people might say that, you know, when we're trying to deal with this problem of modern slavery and isolation, it's a bit like, you know, Nero fiddling while Rome burns or Trump golfing while America explodes. Um, but arguably policies that many governments have prized, which sort of premise the view of largely unregulated markets being able to take care of of social ills, etc. If you could all choose only one thing that you were going to do that you would consider either you or your company or any or a government that would be the most effective action that could be taken to reduce modern slavery, what would be that one thing? David. Um, <laughs> thanks for going to me first, uh, Justine. Um, look, I, 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 the first thing that popped into my head, so that's the answer I'll give you, is clean up your own backyard first. So you know, we just mapped our supply chain. We just had a look at, well, where do we spend our money? Who, who do we buy stuff from? What do we buy? We looked at the largest areas of spend. We looked at our geographical hotspots for slavery that, that are high risk. We looked at high risk commodities like garments and electronics and so on. And we just started to make sense of it. And then we pulled our suppliers together and we said to them, look, we're not experts in this stuff, but we, th this has come onto our radar. We've become aware of human rights abuses and we might inadvertently be involved in those. And it's just, we just don't want to, to be that sort of company. That's not who we think we are, but we have to back that up with action. And, and we want you to join us. Um, you know, can you please go on this journey with us? Um, and by the way, if you do, there are going to be considerable commercial benefits for you because you are going to be the sort of organizations that we want to do business with. We won't be compelled to go to tender every year and um, you know, bash you up on price and all that kind of stuff because we will have found a partner who fits our values extremely well. Um, so I, I, you know, I would encourage any company just to start those discussions with your own um, supplier group, if you like, um, and, and that's a reasonable first step. That's a, that's a great suggestion. I'll even forgive you the use of the word journey. Um, I know, I was, <laughs> was going to say the overused word, but I've only used it once. <laughs> that's fair. Companies are always on a journey to human rights. They're never on a journey to profit. So, Rachel, what would you um, suggest is the one effective action that could be taken? I think it's focusing on um, 
the role of human rights due diligence and getting, as I said before, at those practices and behaviours that can potentially undermine what's otherwise in very good company policies and processes. Um, we see uh, sort of a huge, taking, up, uh, taking it up a level, we see a huge debate now around the role of stakeholder capitalism, around changes to directors' duties and uh, a whole set of other issues that, that could uh, and, and should perhaps flow from that in the years to come in both Europe and the US. Um, I think we feel that while that's an extremely important debate, um, getting your hands around human rights due diligence is something that can and should be done now. It's practical, it's operational, um, and if done in the right way, and if companies are held to the right standard, uh, it can actually really start to address some of these externalities of which modern slavery is one example, but of course not the only one from a human rights perspective. Great, thanks. And Phoebe? Okay, thanks very much for coming, coming in last here. I completely agree with David and Rachel. So I'm going to go um, much more macro, though. I think that if I was waving a magic wand and could really um, think about what needed to be done, I think at a macro level, um, government regulation, uh, enforced government regulation around workers' rights, employment, labour uh, across the globe needs to be put in place. Uh, some global standards need to be put in place. I think uh, we hear far too often but this is how it's done over there, uh, which is in itself just deeply problematic when there are international standards that are not being kept, addressing corruption at every level. These, some of these things that are, are enabling environments for the exploitation of workers need to be addressed. Fantastic. So I'm going to go to some of the questions that come in and... Um... Here's one that says businesses are often scared of finding modern slavery in their supply chains, but if they look hard enough, chances are they'll find it. How do we change this dialogue around this type of situation um, so that consumers praise the organisation because they've done a great job rather than sort of the naming and blaming? Um, David, do you want to start with that one? Yeah, sure. Um, so I get asked this a lot, actually. Um, and um, um, my answer is always, I'd rather be on the front page of the Financial Review, Australia's business paper, um, as, as a CEO or an organisation that went looking to see if they may have human rights abuses in their operation anywhere, shone a light, found it, and is now doing something about it, than to be on the front page of the Fin Review as the subject of an investigative uh, journalist's article that they went looking they found it in Konica Minolta and Konica Minolta had done nothing about it. So I'm not afraid at all of looking and finding. In fact, we have found it. When every, every company is buying goods or, or services or both from organisations who have not done their own due diligence properly or have turned a blind eye. And, and the complexity of supply chains is that it may not be who you're buying it from. It may not even be who they're buying it from overseas but it could be the, the inputs and the components that are going into that finished manufactured product many, many tiers down. And it's, and it's you know, it, it's, it's very, very complex. So there's no shame in saying um, we have not eliminated modern slavery fully from our organisation yet. The pride is in saying we've started to do something about it. 
Which brings us to one of the other questions, Rachel. Um, they, uh, the, the question is that the reporting requirement in the Modern Slavery Act applies to large companies only. So that's companies that uh, have revenue over $100 um, million. How can we scale up action and drive change amongst medium and smaller operators? Great question. And it's a regular one we get and one that is obviously uh, hugely important as these European debates move forward too. Um, the guiding principles recognise that the core elements of human rights due diligence um, are applicable to companies of any size. Um, and we've worked with a number of small and medium sized businesses um, who, yes, certainly have some challenges that are different from larger companies in, uh, in implementing this, but they also have some opportunities um, and, uh, and advantages. Um, uh, that can include uh, where this is really aligned to the owner's personal values. You get in incredibly strong leadership. Um, it can also include already being aware of the fact that employees or staff are often their greatest asset if you're a small business um, and you need to do everything to motivate, retain and, uh, and, and skill them up. Um, and that this can be an important element of that. Um, when it comes to reporting specifically, um, I don't think anybody is expecting uh, small businesses to produce lengthy, glossy uh, reports. That's, that's not really the purpose of reporting. Um, it's being able to show that you can name your top three, five, six, ten, whatever it is, uh, most severe risks to people, and you can give some examples of where you're taking action on them, um, and that that reflects what you're actually doing. So um, I think, again, the, the role of, uh, of human rights due diligence expectations for small and medium business uh, is an issue where we make a lot of assumptions um, and there's more that can be explored there. And, and we're starting to already see some smaller companies standing up and saying, actually, this is in line with our values um, and we support this. Yes, so we should note that although the reporting requirement is $100 million in Australia and $50 million potentially in New South Wales, that in that supply chain will be many small and medium sized enterprises who may voluntarily report or may be reporting up and down the chain to those larger companies. The next question, um, which I open to any of you, is what's your opinion of social monitoring and audit systems to combat modern slavery within the supply chain? So the notion of monitoring or social auditing is like financial auditing, but social auditing is often done where you're basically checking for human rights and labour rights risks, whether it be in a factory, a field, a mine, et cetera. Um, and it often involves uh, a small team going in to look at these risks. There's been decades of you know, social auditing um, and it has very mixed success. Um, so is that something we should be relying on in relation to identifying modern slavery risks? Uh, Rachel, let's go back to you. Happy to come in on that. I think what we've seen is um, a growing recognition by companies that are further ahead on this, that audit and social audit specifically doesn't equate with due diligence and we shouldn't assume that it, that it does. Um, it can play a role. It can check certain issues, particularly around health and safety or building conditions, for example, if we're in a factory context. Um, it's very bad at picking up other issues uh, like failure to respect freedom of association, um, right to unionize, uh, sexual abuse and discrimination um, against women in particular. Uh, and so whatever a company is doing, if it's using social audit as one of its ways of getting information, it's really important that that is complemented with direct perspectives from affected stakeholders, meaning workers, farmers, um, community members, others who are being impacted. That can come through 
trade unions, it can come through direct surveys, it can come through um, anonymous, confidential, safe ways of reporting, um, it can come through a, a number of channels, but, uh, but getting those perspectives into the mix as some social audit processes do, but they don't do it all to the same standard uh, is really key. Uh, Phoebe, there's a question that come in that it says, what sort of contractual requirements should we impose on our supply chain? Uh, thank you, Justine. So in terms of the um, contractual requirements that, that we should be thinking about, first, the first thing that I would like to say is that we shouldn't be depending on contractual requirements to solve our, um, to do our supply chain due diligence for us. That is just one part of the piece. Um, we've been looking at a whole range of different inclusions in contracts that that um, require suppliers to meet certain minimum standards, that if they're unable to meet those standards to um, provide notification back uh, to ensure that um, the suppliers are doing due diligence or imposing certain minimum standards on their suppliers. So you're trying to push the supply chain minimum standards down through, through the supply chain and what that looks like that the suppliers are actually doing some due diligence on their suppliers to, to, to ensure that it's not just um, uh, a tick box exercise, whether they're able to report back to you on an annual basis about the sorts of due diligence that they might be doing. They might not be a reporting entity under the Act, so you may not be able to see what that looks like. Um, and also to ask your suppliers to... Um, report back if there are any issues or if there are any incidences or high risks of um, modern slavery that they've discovered in their supply chain. One of the things that we have really emphasised is that uh, while you may want to retain the option to, um, to end a contract that actually what... Uh, is to really engage with this issue in a substantive way and not, and not take a tick-the-box compliance uh, approach to it. I encourage you to look at the Australian Government Guidance for Modern Slavery, which is a useful document, and there's a lot of resources um, that are out there. So I would like to finish by very much thanking um, David, Rachel and Phoebe um, for all the valuable advice you've given us and your time, and thank you so much to everybody um, who has joined us today, and I'll hand it back to Andrew uh, to conclude. Thanks, Justine. And on behalf of UNSW Law, thank you to our panel, David, Phoebe and Rachel, for taking time out of your busy schedules today to be with us. Uh, this has been such a rich and valuable discussion. These are really challenging times and it feels as though we've got some, you know, a high number of really big global challenges and problems to solve. And, and I think it's really wonderful when we can have a discussion like this which confronts those problems head on, but also gives us a lot of hope and a lot of uh, positive actions that need to be done. So, uh, you know, there's, it can be otherwise kind of overwhelming, possibly depressing to think, how do we deal with this? And each of you has given us so much to think about in terms of really practical steps. So uh, I think the, um, the discussion's just been incredibly forward looking and positive uh, despite the enormity of the challenge. So thank you for that. Modern slavery and human rights law remains a major focus for the faculty at UNSW and particularly for our Australian Human Rights Institute. Um, our philanthropic ambition is to establish an academic chair in business and human rights and I'm always happy to discuss potential support for this important appointment. 
Thank you to everyone who's tuned in live for this discussion. We hope you found it interesting and that you leave with some new ideas and uh, some more knowledge around this area. And particular thanks to all of you who sent in questions. Uh, it's a shame we can never, of course, get to all of the questions that were sent in, but uh, it was wonderful to have them. Um, the webinar has been recorded and will be shared with everyone who pre-registered for this event. Now, if you have a few spare minutes now, there'll be a link to a feedback survey on the webpage, and we would really appreciate your feedback. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the session. Thank you so much for attending. Goodbye.